Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Bullshift the Podcast. My name is John Nagui. I'm the host of the podcast and also the author of the book, Bullshift. This is a podcast where we talk about behavioral finance and specifically where we talk about optimism bias and how the financial services industry shifts your attention to make you feel more bullish. Welcome. My guest this week is Dr. Joseph Nellison. He is the Senior Director of Index uh, Investment Strategy S&P Dow Jones Indices, where his team produces original research and commentary with regard to various industries across asset classes to share with individual institutions, individuals and institutions all around the world. Their work includes the widely uh, recognized SPIVA indices, which have been coming out for well over a decade, maybe even two decades now, with uh, a background in mass behavior and more than 15 years in asset management experience himself, Dr. Nelson continues exploring the intersection between how people make investment decisions and what the data will say about what those decisions actually are. Dr. Joseph Nelson, welcome. Great to be with you, John. I wanted you to begin, if we could please, because I've been following the S&P SPIVA indexes for, uh, uh, for I'm going to say, well over a decade. And SPIVA, for the people at home who don't know, is Standard & Poor's Index versus Active, SPIVA. And you're one of the main people behind the production of these scorecards, which are in all major markets for all major timelines uh, uh, for, for, you know, around the world. Tell me a little bit, please, about how you came to, to doing the research and, and what your findings have been over the years. Sure, uh, John. I'll, I'll give you a little background on SPIVA, but first I think I'd, I'd uh, tip my hat to you around doing some of the same work yourself, if I'm not mistaken, back in the 90s with some of these books that were out right here and there. And I remember seeing these everywhere in airports, you know, the list of the top mutual funds. And, and of course, they all are not the same list, which raises the question, what are the criteria? Um, but, it, you know, you you collected some data and then I think we started to do some work at S&P before I was even at the firm. This was back around uh, 2002, exactly 20 years ago at the end of last year, uh, to try to answer the question of, you know, do do active managers outperform, and if so, how much and how often? Um, indexing has, you know, really started with this revolution back in the 70s and, and has grown so dramatically that um, more and more market participants wanted to, to find data around this, and, and, and people like yourself were already engaged in that. Um, what we've done is, is we started a report where we would look at uh, a transparent universe of, of active funds. We started in the U.S. We've later expanded to other markets around the world. Uh, six of the seven continents are covered now in some fashion. Uh, and we, every 12 months for the full calendar year, uh, look at the performance of funds, and we look at those funds relative to appropriate benchmarks. Uh, S&P has a wide range of benchmarks. We're calculating almost a million on a daily basis now. And so we're talking about basics, though, like the S&P 500 for, for large cap core in the U.S., or, or 500 value or small cap, mid cap, uh, et cetera, emerging markets, you name it. And what we find in the SPIV reports is uh, which percentage of funds underperform over one, three, five, 10, 15, 20 year periods, however far we can go back on the data. 
the results, as you said, are, are fairly well known and understood at this point, which are that uh, over time, most managers uh, underperform the benchmark most of the time. Uh, not always 100, not always, and there are variations in these data, but uh, that is the trend that we tend to see. So let's, maybe we can uh, dive a bit deeper into what the SPIVA research has been showing. I've been reading the SPIVA research for Canada and the U.S. for over a decade. And um, typically you put it out semi-annually, right? Two reports per year. Uh, and we do a six month, which actually will be coming soon uh, in the next month or so for most markets. Right. And uh, and then uh, you used to show one, three, and five-year numbers, but now that the data set has gotten more robust, you've included 10-year numbers for most major markets as well. Is that correct? That's right. And those are uh, exactly data-dependent, and we, we disclose our sources. We show our math as much as we can. Uh, and we do it the same way every year. I think that's important. Um, and also take into account uh, survivorship, which is uh, really Thank essential. You. Yeah, and you'll see you'll see those kinds of data in the back of the reports. It, these are the types of things that a lot of tables, but I would say, look at the tables. They tell you the story. The data will lead you, right? And you can look at over those periods, like you say, John, from one, three, five, ten. 10, if you look at uh, survivorship in certain categories, you know, it, it starts to go down uh, quite dramatically where you see in some cases, you know, less than half of managers um, continue running their fund after 10 years or so, uh, even more in some categories. In addition, you'll see style changes, right? You might see a value manager, um, it's not working out. They switch their style to growth halfway through the, you know, through the period. And we note that as well. And so, so it really is a, a really good uh, microscope view of uh, the fund landscape uh, with a, also the 30,000 foot view of what are all the data telling us in the aggregate. And, what, and some of those results I'll mention are, you know, over, over 10 years, for example, you see uh, underperformance rates of 90 to 95 percent in, in many categories, uh, large cap, uh, and that even includes things like small cap and emerging market. You start to see uh, very high underperformance rates, uh, which I find noteworthy because these are spaces where, when you start to get into the discussion of well, where do you need a, a skilled manager, or where does someone have an edge, so to speak, um, in perhaps less traveled parts of the market, uh, the data don't tend to bear that out. I want to make sure that the people listening in on this podcast are following along because I, because I'm so familiar with your research and because you're extremely familiar with the research, I want to make sure that we're not presuming too much base level knowledge for the people that are uh, uh, listening in. So let me take a moment just to make sure that I can decode what you just said a moment ago. Survivorship bias is when you look at a data set of, let's say, 200 mutual funds that started in, let's say, early 2013 and you look to see how they're doing 10 years later in early 2023. And what you will find is that in many instances, if you start with say 100 funds, it's entirely possible that 50 or more of those funds don't even exist because of various reasons, but usually mostly because of poor performance and the poor performance begets poor asset gathering. And if the, if the fund can't attract assets, the, the manufacturer of the product will likely shut the product down. But if you compare apples to apples, and if you look at the all 100 funds that started the race, if you will, think of it being a marathon. And you can say, well, this is how these different, you have first, second, third, fourth quartile, this is how we all finished. But the first, second, and third, fourth quartile is among the contestants that finished the race. What many people don't tell you is that actually half of the people that entered the race didn't even finish. So you're, 
you're in the top quartile among those that finished, but that might only be the top decile of those that started. So it's, it's interesting that, that people be aware of that. The other thing that I wanted to make sure was clear, and you said it, but I, I, I want to make sure that the people listening heard it, that as time horizons expand, as you look, you look at the one-year data and you know, it's not, nothing is guaranteed. Some, sometimes the average outperforms and sometimes they underperform. But as you start going to three years and five years and 10 years, the likelihood of an average active manager outperforming his or her or their benchmark is reduced. And when we get to the point where you're looking 10 years out or so, it's not uncommon, it's, it's not certain, but it's not uncommon to have only one out of 10 or so active managers beating their investable benchmark over a, a one decade long time horizon. You've said all that. I'm not, I, I'm, I'm sorry for repeating what you said, it's but you said it in right. such a way that I wanted to make sure that everyone followed along in terms of what they're talking about. So your research, and you've been showing this clearly, empirically, in all major markets, and all asset classes, over all one, three, five, 10 year time horizons, that the majority of active managers uh, underperform their investable benchmark, and yet the majority of investors and advisors seem to prefer using active products and strategies as opposed to products that track an investable benchmark. Why do you suppose that is? There could be a lot of reasons for individuals, and, and some of these reasons are structural. Frankly, I think the you know the rise of the kind of the direct contribution industry in, in the U.S. Uh, is largely mutual fund based, and and I think a lot of the, the piping, so to speak, um, really feeds that. And you so see, index funds are finding their way in as well um, to that architecture. But ETFs, for example, you won't find in in many of those plans until very recent times. Uh, but but putting the you know kind of the product wrappers aside, um, I think none of this is to say that it's sort of mutual fund bad, index fund good, right? It's sort of really about how hard it is for anyone to, um, even an individual investor, to try to consistently uh, beat the market over time. It really comes down to math and structure and things that uh, you can't avoid, even if you're very skillful, uh, which many managers and, and asset firms are. They're well-resourced naturally. And I think that the, the reason mutual funds persist is because there, there are many types and they suit many needs. You know, one of the things I think about I know in your podcast you focus on optimism bias quite a lot, and a lot in your writing as well. It's periods when when optimism really reigned and skewed things, and I, you know you can go back to the the tulip bubble, which is probably overanalyzed, but you know clearly there was optimism around a single asset, that little bud in the hand, that uh, of course blew up as as these these bubbles do. And what happened after that? You had some of the first funds rising, right? First, the Netherlands is really kind of the birthplace of, of what we know of as uh, kind of collective funds, which became mutual funds. Much of that was a, a rational desire uh, of investors to have more diversification. Um, you know, and, and things go awry after time, they sort of lose track of the crisis and, and we fall back into our instincts. But you saw this also in the US following the 1929 crash, right? And, you know, you can see that the roaring 20s before that were a period of high optimism, naturally fueling that market. What happened after the 29 crash? Again, a, a burst of mutual fund growth, uh, people looking for diversification, doing the right thing. So mutual funds can, can achieve a lot of uh, different objectives. And, and uh, it's just that when, when one tries to uh, seek uh, performance, I think there are, in our research, we're finding there are three, three uh, there are many, but I think three major factors that um, present uh, headwinds. And if, I'll mention those if you, if you don't mind. And I think one of them is uh, fees, obviously. Uh, if the index funds are 
generally less expensive than than active funds uh, with a higher fee hurdle that manager already has a, a bit of a you know if, if you're a marathon analogy they're starting you know 50 yards behind the start line compared to everyone else and they have to overcome that so um, you'd have to generate alpha just to be back at equal uh, this the second thing that I think is important is the the uh, what we call skew and this is a phenomenon, a positive skew that is uh, in the distribution of stock returns. If you look at most markets around the world, most of the time, especially for longer periods, you'll find that uh, a minority of stocks outperform the, the index average uh, and the index return itself. And, and why is that? It's because you've got a few, you've got these high flyers, you know, like some of these major tech stocks that that have a high weight and drive a lot of the return and everything else is kind of behind those, right? And so. It, statistically, the U.S., for example, you'll see over 10 years, maybe maybe 20% or 30% max of stocks beating the market. Um, there are times when that shifts, but mathematically, your chances of picking a winning stock uh, statistically are more difficult because of that skew. And last, uh, there's something called the, we we call it the professionalization of asset management. Um, and I would tell a little a little short story about this if you don't mind, and you've probably heard it if you haven't. Uh, there was a statistician in, in England uh, back in the early 1900s. His name was Francis Galton, and he went to a, a county fair smiling. I know you know this one. There was a county fair where people had to guess the weight of an ox. Um, and he was interested in this because of the 787, I think, guesses uh, to calculate the average weight of the ox, they were coming from a diverse group of people, right? Uh, you, you know, farmers, mothers, fathers, kids, as well as some experts in agriculture, people in, you know, ox experts, if there were such a thing, uh, all, all coming from with their own sort of experience to guess this weight. Um, he gathered those guesses, took them home and, and did statistical uh, work on them and found that uh, individually, they were all uh, fairly far off, so kind of high standard deviation. But the average of them was 100, or excuse me, 1,197 pounds, the ox weighed 1,198. So the average was within one pound of the ox weight. And that's a long, long, too long of a story to tell you that, you know, something about the wisdom of crowds. If you apply this to markets um, and professional investors in those markets, more and more types of investors are um, highly focused on security prices. So it is very difficult to think that you can outsmart uh, the crowd and, and find a, a uh, you know, an asset that is mispriced in a way that's, that's actionable. That's great. It's funny because I, I heard a presentation done by uh, an American author, James Sirowiecki, who wrote a book called The Wisdom of Crowds 10 or 12 years ago. And, right. and you know, and he, he was, that, I think that was the first time I heard the story of Galton's Ox. I've shared it with a number of friends uh, since. And it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating way of demonstrating that uh, none of us is smarter than all of us, is the way that, uh, you know, I sometimes like That's to right. say it, is that collectively, uh, we, we, we might be individually not that smart, but collectively we're pretty accurate when you, when you think of things. The other thing that I like to, to tell uh, when, I, when I explain um, comparing and contrasting active products and strategies with passive ones is uh, a paper that came out a little, over, uh, a little over 30 years ago by William F. Sharp, who's a Nobel laureate, uh, the uh, progenitor of the Sharp Ratio and Capital Asset Pricing Model and, and what have you, um, called The Arithmetic of Active Management. And in, in that paper, he showed that uh, because of the first of the three reasons you, you gave, which is the cost, um, that the expected return for uh, a benchmark, an index, such as what you track at S&P, will be X. And because the average um, 
product that tracks it will have a, a low MER, a low management expense ratio. It will get you that return minus or, or the sum total of all the different products that, that track the benchmark will get you the return of that benchmark minus the average blended expense ratio. And the sum total of all the active products will get you the same return of the benchmark minus their blended cost, uh, average cost. But because their average cost is higher, the expected return of the average active investor must be lower than the expected return of the average passive investor. And one of the things that I find interesting about the industry and the bullshift of the industry, the optimism bias of, of, being, of using active strategies, is that people seem to think that they're the exception. You know, I, I understand that on average, uh, active will underperform passive, and, and, and maybe not even that. Some people are in denial about the evidence, which is you know, unequivocal and been proven five ways till Friday, and you know, the paper came out over 30 years ago. It's been very widely circulated. Why do you think it's been so hard for people to understand, internalize, and apply the evidence, which is fairly self-evident to my mind? Optimism. <laughs> yeah, we think we can go back to that. I think there's yes, but this time it's different. And I, you know, I've been, as you mentioned, as you, as you have in this industry long enough to have many meetings with, with uh, astute managers and investors who would say, yes, yes, uh, Joe, we know that it's hard to time the, the market, but then they whisper, but we can, right? They, they we're different. Um, and, and they very, may very well be, as you said, though, it's a zero sum game. And I think the you know, the uh, dustbin of, of old investor books is littered with with the rising rock star manager on the cover, arms crossed in their suit and tie, uh, who, you know, 10 years later uh, are, are moving on because uh, the market moved away from their strategy. Um, and this is not, not none of us are, are immune to that. Uh, but I think this question of, or this comment that people would make to say, well, I, I'm different uh, or more precisely, we see Spiva results, we see these averages, but obviously we don't pick average managers, right? We pick good managers. We only pick outperforming managers, which seems like the right thing to do, but that spawned a, a, an offshoot of the Spiva reports, which we call the persistence scorecard. And we've been producing these quite a while as well. They come out uh, shortly after the, the Spiva results every year. And the persistence scorecards um, answer a related question, which is, among the top performing managers and the bottom performing managers uh, in any given year, what happens to them in the subsequent years, right? If you were to take a, a rational approach of picking a top quartile manager, for example, uh, at the end of 2020, let's just go back a few years, right? Uh, we looked at in one of our tables, you know, about 950 funds across many categories, top quartile, those 950 at the end of 2020. Can you guess how many of those remained in the top quartile by the end of 2022? Uh, well, well, I probably can't, but but hang on. It's 920 to start, and you what, well, what you're saying. And you have to be top quartile for three consecutive years, therefore, right. 2020, 2021, yeah. and 20. So which of the top quartile in 2020 remained top quartile for that year and the two years uh, that followed? Uh, I would guess... Um, approximately 15 or 16 percent. That would be a generous guess because mathematically, uh, even if we were random, you'd say that the next year would be 25 percent of that. The next year, 25 times 25 percent, which is six and a quarter percent, would remain there over three years if there were no skill involved. 
Uh, in fact, we found it's something like 0.8%, which is really just one, oh, one fund out of the 950 that, that were all top quartile just three years prior uh, remained in the top quartile the, the following two years. And, and that, again, goes back to these headwinds we talked about. It's not about, you know, a lack of skill or effort. It's just so difficult, right? And we see this in many markets around the world now. Uh, it, I, as an investor, as a fund selector of any type, uh, this should give one a healthy amount of pause around how do I select uh, the best, right? And what do I want them to do? Um, if we're just looking at returns and, and rankings, uh, that's that's what we're talking about here. But I think it, you know, it creates incentives for for many uh, people involved in this process to to try to hit the the ball out of the park, right? Or to to you know swing for the fences and um, to be in that top ranking and and taking on more risk, which feeds uh, a lot of other kind of biases in the market and things like momentum and other um, you know high beta biases that that uh, that we can observe and, and capitalize uh, capitalize upon uh, through indexes now. Right. I've been waiting for so long since we first connected with one another to set up uh, doing this podcast to talk to you about. Uh, one of the bugaboos of mine, which is the phrase that the industry uses all the time, which is stock pickers market. And so in order to introduce the concept, I'm wondering if you could answer my question in two different ways. When I ask you what is a stock pickers market, I want you to tell me what you believe a stock pickers market is, but I also want you to tell me what you believe the average person's belief of an average stock pickers market, what, what a stock pickers market is. Because uh, when, when, when you and I spoke about what this what it is you gave me a very uh technical precise answer that i believe most people on the street would never give but i i don't want to put words in your mouth so you please tell me what you think when you use the phrase stock pickers markets what does it mean to joe nelson and then what does it mean if you're just an average person that you walk on the sidewalk and you shove a microphone under their nose and say hey what does the stock pickers market mean if if I ever if I ever say the phrase it's a stock picker's market out loud, uh, usually you should look at my face because my eyes will be rolling in a large arch. Um, to, if I were to just say it that way, uh, but as you and I discussed, you know, in our communications, I wouldn't say it, 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 it's binary, it's stock picker's market or not. I would use you know relative terms rather than absolute ones and and in other words i touched upon this a little bit in some of the the things about the headwinds for active management or stock selection uh one of those features is skew right if if most stocks are um underperforming the index return that pot that's positive skew you've got this long tail of a few that are doing great um that that means that's really not a stock picker's market i mean it's not easy it's the the statistically uh, you're unlikely to pick a winner in relative terms, though, we do point out like last year, for example, in the United States, in U.S. markets, uh, in the S&P 500, uh, we saw a reversal of that skew. We saw actually for the calendar year, 59% of stocks outperform the index. Um, and that's largely when that kind of thing happens, which is relatively rare, but not unprecedented. Uh, it usually means some of the biggest stocks that have the most impact on the index are some of the underperforming ones. So times when, you know, the mega, cap names are uh, doing worse, uh, you tend to see a greater number of stocks outperforming the index because those big names are bringing the average down, if that makes sense. And so we wrote about in our uh, 2022 SPIVA scorecard how 
for for a lot of reasons, and I'll touch on a few others, uh, it was a really favor relatively favorable year for someone to try to pick stocks, right? You had this positive skew. You also had um, higher volatility, which again, many managers would say is beneficial to them uh, because of their expertise to navigate that. Higher dispersion, and when I say dispersion, I mean that it's really just the, the width of difference between the best and worst performing stocks, right? If everything's kind of performing in lockstep and you, you pick a winning stock, it doesn't really generate that much excess return, right? Uh, but when there are big variations, um, an astute investor can do relatively better. They can also do worse, right? There's volatility on the downside, so one must be careful. But all of these factors- Great. I'll stop you there if I can. That's a good, that's a good uh, explanation of what Joe Nelson means okay. when he says stock pickers market. What, does, what, what do you think an average man or woman on the street thinks when they hear that, that phrase? I, I think people have been uh, conditioned to believe that it is a, a fish pond full of giant bass ready to be hooked and um, easy pickings, right? It, it's because everyone thinks they're a stock picker, um, <laughs> you know. To generalize, right, and um, that it's easy. And I, in my mind right now, I'm thinking back to you know the IPO boom of the late '90s, where it, it's just everything that was going public. It just was a chance to to get rich, and that was the perception, right? And you couldn't go wrong. And we've seen that's really not the case, but um, it's a chance for the issuer to get rich, but maybe the maybe the, the investment bank. Um, I think that the average, per, it's hard to say for me to say what the average person thinks because I, you know, the average is, is everybody together. But I think, again, I think this is, this phrase comes about in a, in a way that this is the time, this is when we're going to do it, right? And I go back to last year again, it was, you know, after 10 years of the lament of, of many uh, portfolio managers was in this bull market, uh, when everything goes up, you know, my skill is being um, overwhelmed by by flow, by just easy money and everyone investing in everything. I need a difficult market to show my skill. 2022 handed people a difficult market uh, with pos or with uh, less positive skew. And uh, we saw marginally better results, but still the majority of managers underperforming. When you think about what we talked about five minutes ago, with the, uh, the sharp research and how the average active manager must underperform the average passive manager. And then you marry that and, and the fact that it's a zero sum game in aggregate. And it's always an aggregate, there are always going to be exceptions, I wanna be clear. My concern is with the media and the optimism bias of the industry because they will say things like we're entering into a stock picker's market as if there, as if there was like a, 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 a switch that had been flipped in terms of you know now it's on and then in three weeks Thursday it'll be off again so you have to you know get in while you can because the stock pickers market is going to be the trains leaving the station. That's that's the thing that I have always found off-putting about the industry, is that it's it, it implies that that there are circumstances there's an implied circumstantiality about when you should be picking stocks. And the irony is that the industry will frequently say, we're in a stock picker's market or we're entering into a stock picker's market. But I cannot for the life of me recall one time when someone in the industry says, oh, by the way, the stock picker's market is over. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's no, we're no longer in a stock picker's market. And the other thing that I can't help but notice is the, the brazen self-interest that the people who say that it's a stock picker's market, you know what they do for a living? They're stock pickers. 
<laughs> so of course they're going to say that. But every time a stock picker wins a trade, he or she is trading with another person who is also a stock picker who by definition has to lose that same trade. And, and what I find interesting is that the industry, I don't know the precise details of the regulation in the U.S., but in Canada we have regulations saying that you cannot, you are, you are prohibited from in a newsletter or in a public commentary saying anything that is false or misleading. And yet, I would, I would argue that people have been saying we're in a stock picker's market or we're entering into a stock picker's market for perhaps 100 years. For as long as there's been stock markets, uh, robust stock markets in North America, there have been people who have claimed the, the, the implied circumstantiality of this time is, is a better time for being a stock picker. And it's never been true. And what I find interesting, and, and we're going to get into the regulation and the enforcement of regulation, and I understand that's not your field, but humor me for a moment. What do you think can be done about misleading presentations and, and, and attitudes and forecasts and whatnot from within the industry that will cause the general public to believe things that's, that are simply mathematically impossible? I, I don't know that I have the, the the precise answer. I think with your specific example of of saying it's a stock picker's market, um, that's hard to enforce or or mitigate because it what does it even mean, right? We it doesn't it's not saying um, we think the the market will go up X percent. I mean people do this too, right? You can make predictions and there are many disclosures behind them. Um, but it's it, it, stock pickers market could mean anything to other people. I think I even take a step back from that. Why do, why do we even say, why do we even want a stock pickers market? Why is that even a good thing? And I think that is a, is a, uh, you know, an outgrowth of, of FOMO where it, this, this idea that if you're picking stocks, you're inherently trying to do it better than someone else. And I think that's fueled the rise of indexing is some um, more people realizing this is really damn hard right? and and i've blown up myself or or you know my my family or my client uh trying to be too concentrated let's diversify you can do that with funds too if you if you're careful about picking ones that are you know reasonably um diversified and, and not taking too much risk but what can be done to go back to your question I, I i don't know that it's a regulatory answer i think it's a it's a education answer for people um at an earlier age to really separate the, the, the bullshit to use your term from the, from the realities, right. Of, of, of risk and reward. Uh, and I'll give you one quick example of, of where this is going wrong in, in my own life. You know, my, uh, my wife told me the other day about a good, a good friend of ours is there's their son's in high school and he's part of an investing club. Uh, and, and you know, I said, Hey, do you have any advice for me? And we asked him, uh, you know, well, what, what's the time horizon of your investing club? Uh, three months. Okay. Red flags. Right there. Uh, and, and what are you trying to do? He said, well, we're trying to get in the top uh, 25 uh, teams. How many teams are doing this? Um, about 3000 teams. So success for them is being in the top, you know, fraction of 1% over three months. What are they incentivized to do? You know, they all Take massive them. risk. All Put all your money into one risky stock and hope that it has a good three-month run. That's the only way to be, quote, successful in this exercise. And in fact, their own you know, high school team advisor told them, you need to find the riskiest thing you can and, <laughs> and load up on it.
this is how we're teaching investing, right? Uh, it sounds like a fun exercise because it's not real money, but eventually what are they going to learn? And I think that, you know, I know I'm going on about this, but I think with the, with the rise of social media, which isn't all bad, but I think it, it allows a lot of uh, players in the door to to gain an audience who may not have the best advice, including you know, celebrity endorsers of this or that asset or, you know, NFT, nothing against these things, but you're, you're talking about people kind of talking their book who really don't, don't do this. Um, so I think it starts there is, is, is with some kind of education, whether it's formalized or through, you know, families uh, with their, with their kids at a young age saying, here's what this means. Here's what risk looks like. Here's how much things have gone up and down. Here's the long-term return that seems reasonable based on the past and getting away from this notion of trying to, to beat and win uh, with, with single stocks, uh, which should be part of a broader portfolio. Okay. All right. So we're at the uh, we're at the point where I like to wrap things up, and the, I always like to end with uh, two segments. Uh, the first is that's bullshit. So that's bullshit is where I ask my guests to say, what is it? If there's one thing that you think is wrong with the industry that you think uh, maybe people should be paying more attention to, what would that be, and 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 why? I I would say an overhype on um, anything new. Uh, and I, you know, AI comes to mind. And even one quick story, if you're familiar with the band, the Eagles, um, it, the, the guitarist, Joe Walsh is sort of a famous, you know, uh, fun guy, let's say. <laughs> I had the pleasure of hearing him give a, a, a little speech and he, he was talking about uh, AI, you know, AI and machine learning and how hyped up this is. It's going to replace all musicians. And he said, until AI can glue the furniture to the ceiling of a hotel room, and throw the television out of the balcony <laughs> and land it in the center of the pool from the seventh floor, there will be space for human songwriters and artists. And I kind of love that because, you know, he, he, he's he got an interesting experience. Those are things he did, if you're not familiar. I, um, I know the story. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, but what do you, I think what, if I take it back to investing, and I, I kind of did right away, it's really about there's this human element that we can't forget. And if you're an advisor, you you know what I'm talking about, where where you you can do all the math and find the optimal risk return portfolio for your client, but you also need to sit across the table with them, see them, look in their eyes and say, you know, what's wrong today? Are you, what are you worried about, right? What, what financial goals um, are we not discussing? And, and how do we achieve these without all the noise around us in the world of, of beating this and, and alpha that, right? It's about outcomes uh, for individuals and families and, uh, I think we, it's that human element that we, we are starting to lose sometimes when we talk too much around uh, technology hype. Very little doubt that life's been good. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, let's, let's then move on to the, the ending segment, which is uh, shift happens. You've uh, just identified a concern. What would you do to solve it? How would you, what would you recommend? I, I go back probably to the last two examples I gave, you know, Joe Walsh and, and the high school student who hopefully, you know, follow different paths in life, but uh, is, is around that, that education. Um, and I think it's on all of us. I think you're doing your role here to, to promote that as well, uh, is telling people, you know, what to watch out for um, in themselves. You know, we, we have these instincts uh, as these creatures, you know, that have been evolving over time. They're still there uh, that sometimes drive us in the wrong direction. And I think that we look at the data, we look at what we want, we look at, um, risk more rationally uh, and people do this from time to time in some of the examples we talked about um, but reminding each other education uh, around 
financial outcomes and, and what, what indexes do, what funds do, um, and, and how to be an astute picker of all of these um, is really the key. Great. Dr. Joseph Nelson, thank you so much for joining me today. For the people listening at home and watching at home, please be sure to like and subscribe because we really do appreciate your support. And people like Dr. Nelson are just fantastic. Uh, at, at basically, uh, you're, you're, you're an ambassador for, for the research that's being done in personal finance to help people understand what is and is not, is not empirical and, and how they should be thinking about things. And, and so I really want to thank you and the people at SPIBA and the people at Standard & Poor's for the, for the work that you do because it is really setting the bar to help people move forward with confidence and making better financial decisions. And for that, I'm very thankful. We're curious and we hope everyone else stays curious too. That's the future. Thank you. All the best. John DeGuey is a portfolio manager in Toronto and the author of the book Bullshift, How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finances. Bullshift is available online and in bookstores everywhere. The opinions expressed in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Bullshift, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTUM. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.